Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Kids, you are dismissed to Children's Church. Have fun down there. If you guys have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Thanks to all the dads for their really bad, dry jokes. Truth be told, I'm a sucker for sarcastic, dry humor. I love that stuff. Makes me laugh every time Mark, the uh, Batman and Robin one, I think takes the cake, man. Robin, get in the car. This is good. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to go verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to read through this in just a little uh, time here in a second, but first have some, just some church family business to attend to. Uh, these two lovebirds, Mary Beth and Brian Shoup, as of yesterday, Juneteenth, married for 50 years this year, so congratulations, you guys. Where, where is this picture? Guess do a little trip there. Florida. Man, looks great. You're working? Yeah, working hard. I can see that's awesome. Well, congratulations to you guys, and uh, man, happy anniversary. What an accomplishment, 50 years. This is great. Uh, The other thing I wanted to say thanks to the Lanes. I don't know, Dennis, Valerie, you guys are up there. Lanes had a, a going away party for Daniel Newberry this week. Bunch of kids out there, just awesome, awesome time to celebrate together and have a lot of fun. So thank you guys for opening your home and, and treating the youth ministry to that just wonderful time uh, with, with them and giving Daniel and Rachel our parting goodbyes as they head to Payson, Arizona. We'll call them up just a little bit at the end of the service today. So uh, thank you guys for being here. As you guys are turning, if you haven't found Galatians 5, let me pray for us and we'll jump in and, and read the text this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that you are a good father. Thank you that you are holy and just. Lord, and as a father, you know everything that we need. Lord, you are sufficient for us. You love us unconditionally. You discipline us and bring us back to yourself. Lord, we thank you for all the the great truths that we have of of who you are, and, and most of all this, enduring theme of of family. I thank you that we are united in one family through Christ's death on the cross for us, and that we all have the same heavenly Father who loves us because of Jesus. Lord, as we look at this uh, text in Galatians 5 this morning, I pray that you'd help us to be attentive and that you would open our, our minds and our hearts to the truth, that you would speak to each and every one of us. Um, as we continue to go through the book of Galatians, just impart on us wisdom and and this great theme of of freedom in Christ. Lord, help us to know more and more every single day the truth of the gospel, what it means for our lives and our identity in in you. We thank you for for who you are and for what you've done, and and it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray this morning. Amen. Well, this morning on Father's Day, I, I get the opportunity to use all illustrations that fathers will appreciate. And so, fathers, I want to introduce you to one of my very best friends in all of life. Uh, This guy's name is Mr. Bakhtiari, David Bakhtiari. You might not be able to tell from this photo, but David Bakhtiari stands six foot, four inches tall. He's about 300 or 310 pounds on a bad day. Ran the 40-yard dash in about five seconds flat, 5.09 at that size. Two-time first-team All-Pro, three-time second-team All-Pro, two-time Pro Pro Bowlers for the Green Bay Packers. Bakhtiari was drafted in 2013. I know you guys are really interested in this, so just hang on to me. Uh, From the University of Colorado. And the Packers just extended his contract with a four-year, $105.5 million contract made him, as of November 2020, the highest paid offensive lineman in the entire NFL. And I know what you're thinking. What has this guy done that is so special? 
that he deserves of all people. $105.5 million. Why did the Packers do this? Let me tell you exactly why. Last year, Bakhtiari started 758 snaps at left tackle for the Green Bay Packers. Of those 758 snaps, probably a little bit over half, Aaron Rodgers took the snap and dropped back in the pocket to pass it. And of those times that he dropped back in the pocket, Bakhtiari let one guy get by and sack Aaron Rodgers. 758 snaps. Second reason, season before that, he took just over 1,000 snaps. He got injured at the end of last year. And over the 1,000 snaps that Bakhtiari took at, at left tackle for the Green Bay Packers, protecting Aaron Rodgers' blind side, for that entire season, he allowed two sacks. If you can put up those kind of numbers in the NFL, you are worthy of $105.5 million for four years. This guy keeps more people out than Trump's wall on the border, and he is successful at doing so. He is a freak of nature, and that is why I call him my best friend from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I know, and I know what you're saying. Verweel, come on. Man, it's June, right? We're not even to the preseason yet in the NFL. And by the way, your quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, is probably more likely to host Jeopardy than he is to ever take another snap as a Green Bay Packer. And I would say this, you're probably right. But the reason I'm talking to you about Bakhtiari this morning is, is one simple reason. He has one responsibility, and one responsibility alone as an offensive tackle. When guys that are bigger than he is, stronger than he is, and faster than he is are burling over to get to him and basically kill him, Bakhtiari has one responsibility to simply stand firm. Protect the quarterback and stand firm. Have you found Galatians chapter five, verse one? Look down at this verse, sort of read it for you. For freedom, Galatians 5, verse 1, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Stand firm is a, a strong command throughout the Bible. The first time we see it in Greek is the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. With the Red Sea in front of the Israelites and Pharaoh's army behind them, Moses commands the people of Israel to stand firm and to watch the deliverance of the Lord before their eyes. In the New Testament, this word, this phrase, occurs exactly 10 times. In John 8, the verb subject is Satan, who does not stand firm on the truth, the truth of God's word and the truth of who God is. In Romans 14, verse four, stand firm is used of a slave who stands firmly next to his master. But by far the greatest usage of this phrase and this command to stand firm is used by the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, he commands the Corinthians to stand firm in the faith, to be strong and courageous. In Philippians chapter one, verse 27, the Apostle commands the, the Philippian believers to stand firm in one mind with unity, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. Second Thessalonians 2.15, standing firm in, in what the believers had been taught in the orthodox tradition of the faith is what the Apostle Paul commands. Stand firm simply means this, to be fully committed in conviction and belief. Most scholars believe that Paul is picking up on military terminology, just like a faithful Roman soldier, soldier would stand firm and resist attack and be courageous in the face of battle. Paul calls, calls the Galatian believers here to stand firm and to fight. This is a, a posture of a soldier. Paul's mindset is that the Christian needs to be ready for battle, to fight for the freedom that we have because of the truth of the gospel. Here in Galatians 5, the command is to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel and who Christ is and what he has done for us. I love what Luther says in his, um, what's become a, a timeless tradition on the, on the gospel is his commentary to Galatians. It's a standard, he says, 
Be not careless, but steadfast and constant. Lie not down in sleep, but stand up. They that are secure and negligent cannot keep this liberty, for Satan deathly hates the light of the gospel. In Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12 this morning, I want to talk about how Christians are called to stand and to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. We're going to see three things as we work through this text. We're going to ask and answer this question, why Christians stand firm, verse 1. Number two, how to keep from falling, verses 2 through 6. And then finally, who we stand against, verses 7 through 12. How, or excuse me, number one, why we stand firm, how we keep from falling, and who we stand against. Now, as we approach the beginning of of Galatians chapter five, um, Paul is is making a major turning point in his epistle up to this point. I wanna stop and just kinda look back at what we've covered so far in this letter to the Galatians and see just a macro view of of where Paul is going and what he has done so far up to this point. First, in Galatians, we saw the mark of the gospel. In Galatians 1, 1 through 10, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that there is no other true gospel except for the gospel that he is teaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of freedom. And anybody who preaches a gospel contrary to his does not have that true mark of the gospel. Secondly, as he continued on in verse 11 of chapter one all the way through the end of chapter two, we saw him describe ministers of the gospel. We saw what he refused to do as a true apostle. We saw a lot about his authority as an apostle gifted by God and called to the ministry of the gospel. Thirdly, and we just covered this last major section, chapters three and four, was the message of the gospel itself. And more than anything else, Galatians 3 and 4 led us to the truth that because of what Jesus has done, because of the gospel, we have a new redeemed family in Christ. No longer does Jew and Gentile matter. No longer does slave and free, male or female, distinguish us and and give us any kind of distinction. Because of the gospel, we are one in Christ. We are one new family. And we are set free from the condemnation of, of sin and death and the wrath of God. And now we have a new community, a new faith family. Now as as he closes the book in chapters five and six, we're gonna talk about matters of the gospel. And this is where the title for the sermon series came about. Like, um, Like Paul often does in his letters, at the beginning he gives us a lot of doctrine. And at the end, in chapters five and six, he's gonna give us a lot of application. So whereas chapters one through four were largely propositional, Chapters five and six now are gonna be applicational. Whereas chapters one through four are about what we believe, chapters five and six are gonna be about how we now live. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, what, what Paul is telling us, just in the structure as you think about the book of Galatians, and as you take a step back and look at the whole and where he is going, he's telling us the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just informational, the gospel of Jesus is transformational. The gospel is not something that should just impact the head and the mind. The gospel is something that penetrates to the heart. And it changes our lives and it transforms us to the core of who we are. The gospel is not just about coming to faith. The gospel is also about living by faith, which is to say the gospel matters. It matters for everyday life just as much as it matters for coming into this thing called the Christian Christian life. This week we're gonna see that the gospel matters for freedom and freedom in Christ. And so let's press forward number one, number one in your outline. Why do Christians stand firm? Verse one, let me read this verse again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, Paul begins Galatians 5 with the repeated and a profound emphasis on freedom. And freedom is probably the major theme in all of chapter five. Freedom is mentioned two times in this one verse, once at the beginning and once at the end. But what's more than that is it's mentioned both as a noun and as a verb. In the context, freedom is both the means and the end for the believer. 
it leads us to the end of redemption that is completely caught up and found in Christ. We cannot underestimate the importance that the Apostle Paul is placing on this Christian concept through the gospel of freedom and freedom in Christ. What I want you to notice is the verb tense at the beginning of this very first phrase. It goes like this, for freedom Christ has set us free. That's a past tense verb. And in Greek it's in the aorist tense, which means it captures action, past tense action into a single event. And it's something that has been completed in the past. We can look back and we can say as Christians, if we have truly placed our faith in Christ, that we have been set free by Christ. And it begs a very important question. Set free from what? Or set free from whom? In the Bible, uh, freedom is presented as a, it's a signal blessing. It's something that changes who we are and, and distinguishes many other aspects coming from the truth of freedom. Under the new covenant, freedom is an element that distinguishes being redeemed in Christ. Because of the gospel, we have been freed from the yoke and the slavery of the law. Religious regulations and, and legal restrictions no longer have a bearing, no longer are we required to fulfill those things in ourselves which we could never do apart from Christ and apart from the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 2.16, believers have been freed from sinful desires and passions. Apart from Christ, the only thing that you can be is enslaved and taken into your sinful desires, your sinful longings and passions. And the Apostle Paul is not saying because we are, we are freed from these passions and lusts that we won't experience and still desire sinful things. What he's saying is that those sinful desires no longer rule us. No longer do we have to be mastered by them. Christ has mastered them himself when we cling to and depend on him. Number three, because of the gospel, we have been freed from the penalty of our sin, from the wrath of God. Number four, Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that we have been freed from the calamity of death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? And number five, the power of sin and death has been broken because of the freedom that believers have. We have been liberated into everlasting life. That is a life that starts the second that you trust Christ and carries into eternity. What that means is Christianity is not, it is not, as some have suggested, a set of morals or principles to follow. Christianity is different from morality. Christianity is different from keeping certain laws and principles. A Christian is not someone who adheres to a system, a set of rituals, whatever they might be. A Christian experiences freedom both from something and to something. A Christian freedom is, is inward and subjective, and it is outward and objective. Christians experience a freedom that is, that is inward and subjective. Because of freedom, we are freed from the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of sin and the law that is upon us apart from Christ. We have an inward subjective freedom that now we don't have to walk in fear. We can walk in joy and love in a delightful relationship with the Lord our God. Outwardly, believers are freed from everything that enslaves the world, from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and even from death. We stand in this freedom now. We are liberated and experience the freedom of Christ today when we place our faith in him and have a relationship with Jesus. One of the great biblical scholars of all day called the Apostle Paul the Apostle of Liberty because of his emphasis on this idea of Christian freedom. Another commentator, I love how he puts it, he says, everything about the Christian gospel is freedom. Jesus' whole mission was an operation of liberation. But as rich and as fantastic as freedom is because of the gospel, it is also very fragile. Freedom for the Christian hangs on a thread. Freedom for a church is dicey, and it is it is fragile, hanging by a thread. The principle is that if we don't actively fight 
to preserve our freedoms, we will passively lose them. And we will experience slavery all over again. Paul commands us to stand firm in freedom because freedom is something that can be lost subjectively for the Christian. Freedom is something that we need to fight for. And I believe that that the gospel and the death of Jesus is, is so strong that when he died for our sins, he died for all sin, past, present, and future, Colossians 2, 13. There is no sin when you believe in Jesus Christ that he did not pay for by his death on the cross. For a true believer, salvation cannot be lost, but for a true believer, freedom can be. And so Paul says to stand firm and fight for it. When we lose the freedom of the gospel, we unknowingly submit ourselves all over again to the terrible effects of sin and slavery. No longer do we experience joy and delight in God. When we give over our freedom, we operate in fear. No longer do we encourage and celebrate with one another, we compare and act very critically instead. Rather than spirit-empowered unity, when we give up our freedoms, we default to unanimity, and that can be extremely enslaving. We turn away from things that matter and we are consumed by things that really don't. Legalists are obsessed with pettiness and the insignificant. And all it does is fertilizes a field of discord, disruption, and destruction for a church. And it will lead to death. Why does Paul give such a strong, repeated, um, hard emphasis on freedom? Why does he use this command to tell Christian believers to stand firm and to fight for freedom, to not even submit for a second to hypocritical legalism, like chapter two, when Paul confronted Peter, to not submit to the yoke of the law, like we're reading here in chapter five. Losing freedom is, is like losing a critical game in a series, or losing your star offensive lineman. It kills motivation morale, confidence, and joy. When freedom dies, a thousand other things die with it. So he says, stand firm in freedom, because in Christ we are free, and we need to preserve the elements of freedom that we can enjoy and walk in as a body of Christ. Number two, number two in your outline. How do we keep from falling? How do we keep from falling from freedom? Um, let's, let's look down and, and just read the rest of this passage before we get into this too much. Look down at verse two. Paul writes, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 7, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Looking back at verse 2, you can't help but notice that Paul's appeal here to the Galatian believers, it is very solemn and it is serious. And we don't read about this very much in Paul's letters. He says, look, I, Paul, first person reference, I, Paul, appeal to you. Very few times in any of his letters will you see the emotion and the strength of that brief introduction. And it underscores the following words are going to carry immense weight as the Apostle Paul launches into this section. One commentator says this, Paul's introduction, look, I, Paul, appeal to you. Paul's introduction mobilizes his whole authority as an apostle. We should probably read this something like, mark my words. If Bill Thrutchley was talking to me, he'd say, look, 
I'm going to tell you something like I tell my kids. I want you to focus. I want you to remember. If you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this. And the main obstacle that Paul addresses here in the context of Galatians 5 is circumcision. And and this is something that we really don't understand as much as the Jewish heritage and tradition probably would. You gotta realize, for the Jews, circumcision was not just an external rite. It was not just this thing they did as a, a rite of passage, even. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant to Abraham. And anybody who can claim that they were a Jew will take their family lines and their lineage back to him. He is the father of the nation of the Jewish people and the father of the nation of Israel. Literally, circumcision marked an Israelite as one of God's chosen people. It was a physical mark to distinguish them from every other people group on the face of the earth. Everything we know, everything we know from ancient Near Eastern literature, whether it's Mesopotamia, Egypt, Babylon, or Akkadian literature, we don't know of any other people group that had this element, this rite of circumcision that distinguished them from everybody else on the face of the earth. And during the Greco-Roman period, circumcision was outlawed. Uh, The Hellenists believed that it was barbaric. And so they sentenced people even to death if they find out that they were circumcising like the Jewish people would have. One element that uh, incited the Maccabean revolt is that uh, the Greco-Romans were um, against, adamantly against circumcision and looked at it in a completely different light than the Jews did. Today, scholars identify three distinguishing badges. They call them the badges of the law for the Jewish people. Sure, we don't have any rituals and sacrifices. We don't have the temple. We don't have all that stuff happening in Jerusalem right now. But we do have these three things. We have our food laws. We have our Sabbath regulations. And number three, we have circumcision. And we are going to hold to that distinguishing element of our people group. This is not just a side issue. For the Apostle Paul, it is not just a side issue for the Jews to whom Paul addresses in many of his letters. And all of this makes Paul's three connected statements that much more shocking. I want you to pay attention to these verbs. Verse two, if you accept circumcision, he says Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse four, you will be severed from Christ. Verse four again, you have fallen from grace. Those are strong verbal descriptions of the result of those who go back into the law and embrace circumcision. When he says Christ will be of no advantage to you, what he means there is Christ will be of no benefit. There's no profit. There's no advantage. There's no um, blessing that you have of belonging to Christ through the gospel. When Paul says you have been severed from Christ, the NIV says you have been alienated. It means that you have been removed from Christ's sphere of influence, completely cut off from the family of God through Jesus. You have fallen from grace. These are strong terms. In the context of Galatians, I don't don't believe that this happened yet. It's in danger of happening. He uses it as a warning for these Gentile believers. Paul, he's not mincing words here. He's not trying to shake hands with people on both sides of the aisle. In terms of the gospel and this understanding of circumcision, Paul is not going to sit on the fence and allow things to be okay, whatever side you end up falling on. Paul is drawing a line in the sand, and in no uncertain terms, this is an either-or decision. There is no middle ground here. This is all or nothing. All chips are on the table. You are either for me in the gospel or you are against me and for law and slavery. All of it is brought to a head in verse four. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. What that word justified means is is that if you go back to the law, you truly think that you will be declared righteous 
by following these statues. You really think that your standing and your right standing with God is something that you can achieve by your own efforts, your obedience, your faithfulness to the law. And we, most of us, when we read these things, we know that the Galatians are believers, right? They've truly trusted Christ. He talks to them as if they are believers and understood the gospel. And most of us would see this not as a, a salvation issue per se, we would see it more of a, a Christian life issue, right? They truly were saved, but they need some, some assistance getting through the Christian life through the Spirit, not by the law. Paul doesn't go in that direction at all. Paul goes back to the very truth of the gospel itself, the things that brings us into the family of God, our declaration of righteousness by faith. And he makes this a deeply rooted gospel issue. The principle and some gospel math from the Apostle Paul here. You cannot add to Christ without subtracting Christ. Paul would say in his gospel math, you cannot add to Christ without subtracting Christ entirely. Tim Keller put it this way, Jesus is either all of our value or no of our value at all. He is either everything or he is nothing. And those are the decisions before the the Galatian believers. Um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Any Yankee fans? Wisconsinites out there? Giving Packer references, all this kind of stuff. Uh, every summer, my mom took our, every, all the siblings in my family, there's four of us, uh, to, to Great America, Six Flags Great America. A big theme park just north side of Chicago. Every summer we'd look forward to the day. We did our Read to Succeed program so we could get free tickets as we were going through elementary school and middle school. And we loved every summer doing this with my family, going off to Great America. We'd spend the entire day there. We'd picnic in the parking lot, go back and ride as many rides as we could possibly ride. And at that point in time, uh, the theme park was, was growing exponentially. And no longer were they making these roller coasters where you like sit in a seat and put this bar or belt over your lap. Now they were making roller coasters that have like harnesses for your shoulder and all kinds of ways to strap you in and put your body at all these different angles and whatnot. And there was a new roller coaster that was just built at the theme park at Six Flags in Chicago. It was called the Iron Wolf. What was interesting about the Iron Wolf is you didn't sit down in this roller coaster at all. You stood up the whole ride. You were standing up. And they had this harness that would go over your shoulders and there were two little handles on both sides of this harness to lock you in. The Iron Wolf terrified me. Not because it was a new roller coaster that made you stand up as a rider. The Iron Wolf terrified me because it had a, a specific history, a black mark on its functionality at the theme park. Because there wasn't a huge drop initially from the Iron Wolf, but there was this this complete loop, and the highest point on the roller coaster was the point where you were going to go over this loop and upside down and stand just like that with your harness holding you. And the Iron Wolf was known for failing right at the top of the loop. And in fact, people would go there and see the thing suspended up right at the top because it was the highest point, and they'd see all these people just kind of hanging out and waiting for it to kick back in. When I got into Iron Wolf for the very first time, and I was waiting in line, and you hear all these wolf howls to scare you and get you ready for this roller coaster, I was, I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to get to the top of that loop, and I was going to be hanging by this shoulder harness. And all I could do is hang on to my dear, for my dear life with these two handles. And so sure enough, we get in, get in line, and I go on the Iron Wolf for the first time, and I put my samurai warrior kung fu grip on those two handles <laughs> and desperately prayed to God, please do not malfunction at the top of the loop. Please do not malfunction. I was convinced that if I got stuck, my grip on those handles would actually keep me from falling. Thinking my grip would keep me from falling is just as foolish as what the Galatians were doing. They were thinking that their adherence to the law would keep them from falling. 
would keep them in their right relationship with God, would in fact bring them even closer as they walked with God. How do we keep from falling from grace? A regular and repeated reminder that it is not our grip and our efforts that hold us tightly to Christ. It is Christ's grip over us that hold us together in his family. This is not about our ability to trust him more, to walk faithfully and more obediently, or even to keep these laws of Israel. It is about Christ's work on the cross for us. This is what keeps us from falling. When we struggle with sin, every struggle with sin that we will ever have, go back to the gospel. If you are struggling with a temptation in your life, here's what I want you to do. Go back to the truth in the cross of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Paul will tell you, do not develop a a systematic approach to overcome this struggle. Do not do this step and that step to overcome that struggle. He will tell you, go back to the cross. Realize you're standing in Jesus Christ because of the gospel. Understand that you have been justified by Jesus. You've been declared righteous by the righteous judge. The gospel, verse five, comes with the spirit. The law cannot give the spirit. The gospel is what gives us hope, not our ability to carry out any law that gives us hope. At the core, the Galatians were flirting with identity theft. They forgot who they were because of the gospel. Instead of realizing whose they were and who they belonged to, instead of understanding that their righteousness was in Christ, they were about to fasten their grip to the law and hold on as tightly as they could. Really what they needed to keep from falling was a strong reminder of justification by faith and the truth of the gospel. Number one, why do we stand? We stand because we have been set free from, by the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Number two, how do we keep from falling? Remember the truth of the gospel. Remember Calvary. Remember the resurrection. Number three, who do we stand against? Paul now, it's interesting as this passage ends, he shifts from defense to offense. Paul's gonna almost go on attack here. After having made his argument for freedom and and giving a warning concerning all these false teachers, he goes on the offensive, and he points to them. And here's what he says. I want you to to notice the the present tense participles. Notice these verbs, verse seven. You were running well. Who hindered you? Skip down to verse 10. Who are these people who are troubling you? Verse 12. I wish that those who are unsettling you, these are present tense participles. These false teachers were coming in and wreaking havoc on their Christian life, and Paul is saying, who is doing this? Who is bringing this false teaching into your presence? It would be one thing if these teachers were were simply wrong, and they eventually went on their own way. But look at verse nine. A little leaven leavens the, the whole lump. Verse 9 says that their evil influence permeated throughout all of the churches in Galatia. It multiplied. A little legalism will spread like a virus, like a contagion. It will multiply like a cancer at the tiniest sign and the smallest manifestation of legalism in your life or in your church. It must be dealt with definitively and decisively. Otherwise, it will grow, it will spread and it will infect other people. And when legalism infects other people, people get hurt. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. Legalists in the church unwittingly adapt an unspoken model. Misery loves company. Legalists in a church unwittingly adapt an unspoken motto. Misery loves company. The strength of the imagery can hardly be missed. Look at verse 12. I wish those who were unsettling you would emasculate themselves. Luther said this in his commentary. They compel you to cut off the foreskin of the flesh. I wish they might be utterly cut off by the root. It's a strong language in Galatians. Graphic. 
And that's how serious the Apostle Paul is on this concept of freedom for the Christian. Let's, uh, let's close with a couple points of application. And just before I, I launch into this, I wanna remind you that this is part one of a two-part series on freedom. Okay, so please come back, because there's much more to say about this Christian concept of freedom. I've been a part of two churches that have had lists or criteria. If you're gonna be a leader in this church, here's the 15 things that you need to do. And ultimately, you're a mature Christian if you can check all the boxes on the right rows and stay away from the boxes that are in the wrong rows. In one church, I found out that half of the intern staff didn't even sign the leadership covenant because they weren't uh, confident that it was, it was something that would indicate Christian maturity. In another church, they debated for, for months on whether or not it was gonna be okay for a, a staff person or a, or a leader in their church to have a drink of alcohol, no matter where they were. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to not do. This is how I know if you're a mature Christian. This is how I know if you're an immature Christian, by following these laws and, and listening to these rules and adhering to these, these things. Let me say with as much care and concern, a 39-year-old young pastor here, DTS, please give up your list of do's and don'ts for other people. Lay them to the side. If they're valuable for you, great. Keep them to yourself. But don't inflict your rules and your policies and your ideas and your laws, which might not necessarily be scriptural things, on everybody else. And then everybody suffers from the consequences. All of it is rooted in pride and comparison. Who's more faithful at doing this this thing? Who's better at carrying out this law? Are you a teetotaler? You total your tea? I could care less. Don't get drunk is the sin. Let's call things a sin that Scripture calls a sin, and where there's freedom and grace, let's celebrate that freedom and grace as a community of faith. Young folks, don't look down on old people who wear a sport coat to church. Who cares? <laughs> Why do you care if somebody wears a sport coat or doesn't wear a sport coat? What difference does it make? Some of these Christians have been in this church longer than you've been alive. They're comfortable wearing a shirt, a shirt and tie. That's what they want to do. Let them do what they're going to do. Don't get so uptight about it. Coat wearers don't look down on those who are comfortable in, in jeans and a t-shirt. All those things are external. It's the inner things. It's the heart that matters the most. These are the aspects of Christian grace and freedom that we need to center on, not the things that are seen, not the externals. Some people get so afraid that if you, if you do X, it's going to lead to Y. And so never ever do X, because then it won't lead to Y. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Who knows? Ultimately, none of us, none of us can legislate morality. There's no law that can change and convict the human heart. Only the Holy Spirit can. Only God can. You want to spend your money and, and drive a fast car on the weekends? Go buy a yellow sports car and drive really fast on the weekends. I'll be the first one to jump in the passenger seat with you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with owning things. The thing that's wrong is when those things own you. That's when it becomes a sin. Have the grace and the respect to celebrate liberty where Scripture gives us freedom to celebrate the things that God has given us to enjoy on this earth. A list of do's and don'ts is, is just a list. If it helps, wonderful. Just don't force it on me. And don't force it on other people because they will be turned off by rule regulations and comparisons and pride. Number two, this comes from Chuck Swindoll. Grace killers cannot be mildly ignored or kindly tolerated. Grace killers in a church cannot be mildly ignored or kindly tolerated. 
Legalism never dies on its own. Legalism must be confronted in a church. Let me give you a definition. I'll read this a little slow. Legalism is an attitude. Legalism is a mentality that is based on pride. It is an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. Legalism is an attitude, a mentality based on pride. It is an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. A legalist will assume the place of authority and push it to unwarranted extremes. We can no longer, we can no more allow a legalist to continue to fester in a body than we would allow a rattlesnake to slither into our home and hide. When this stuff happens, people get hurt. The best place to nip legalism in a church, where's the best place to nip it? In the bud. You get it right away, cleanly and decisively, and you cast it out from a church. It will kill and it will hurt people. Thirdly, this is Father's Day. So, just a a final admonition to our fathers. Gosh, I do great until I start thinking about my kids. It's Brandy's fault. Freedom is always motivated, fathers, by unconditional love. Freedom is always motivated by unconditional love. All of us want the best for our kids. All of us want the best for our grandkids. Um, All of us want to see them succeed in life. None of us want to see them go their own way. None of us would wish on anybody a prodigal, uh, a child that goes astray because of their own sinful choices. Fathers, your kids need God's law but you can't ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. Fathers, your kids need God's law, but you can't ask the gospel or the law to do what only grace can accomplish. I've got a a book recommendation for you. This is Paul Tripp, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. The title of this book is called Parenting. And I just want to read a paragraph as we close here. All right, before Newberry's come on up. Paul Tripp says, you need to preach the gospel to your kids, fathers. And I don't mean that parents should preach to their children in a Sunday morning sermon style. I mean you should look every day for every opportunity to point your needy kids to the presence, promises, power, and grace of Jesus. Paul Tripp says, now here's where I think this parental mission of grace begins. It doesn't begin with your concern for the deep spiritual needs of your children, but rather with a humble admission of the depth of your own need. It is when you confess that you don't have a prayer of being God, what God wants you to be, and doing what God wants you to do as a parent without the rescuing and enabling grace of God. You become increasingly excited about the, and thankful for the rescue, and your personal thankfulness causes you to be enthusiastic about your children reaching out for the same kind of help. Fathers, here's, here's the, one of the best things that we can do as we preach the gospel to our kids on a daily basis. Confess our own sins in front of them and to them when necessary. And show them that as fathers, we are just as desperate for the grace of God as they are as children. When we launch out in our families with a foundation of grace and forgiveness, unconditional love will flourish to freedom. And even the best fathers, even the best ones, will still have kids that go astray. It is by God's grace 
that our kids will love the Lord and follow him. Nothing more and nothing less. Fathers, preach the gospel to your kids. TBC leaders, stand firm. Stand firm in freedom. Cast out the legalist. This is not something to mess around with. Let's pray. As I'm praying, you two suckers, come on up here. All right. Father in heaven, thank you um, for these truths out of Galatians 5. Um, Thank you that you lead us and guide us by the grace of the gospel. And every single one of us that is in this room today is in desperate need of that grace. Lord, help us to forsake our own efforts, our own will, to follow laws and rules to bring us closer to you. Help us to completely depend and rely upon who you are and the truth of the gospel of Jesus that gives us an identity that is rooted in freedom. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.